enough. We finished up our series on Moses last week. All those sermons are available online. Go back and check those out. But for the first time, I'm going to ask you today to turn to the book of Romans. How many of you guessed it? Raise your hand up if you guessed it. Well done. The last clue I sent out in the email to the church this week, the last clue was pasta. All right. Now, those of you who, you know, I mean, you could put two and two together, Italian, right? I mean, you follow the trail there. But uh, that was it. So the book of Romans is where we are going in the New Testament. And the series is called Nail It Down. Some of you couldn't figure out the clue when I said it involves a hammer. You're like, hammer, hammer. I don't get the hammer. Uh, Well, I am pleased to share with you the description of the series. And the whole sermon today is going to be an overview of what we are going to be studying for the next year. The book of Romans lit the fuse of the Reformation and transformed the church after a thousand years of decline, doctrinal decline, decay, and corruption. And the Reformation celebrated its 500th anniversary last year. And I knew I wanted to do something, but I didn't want to just do like a day because it was such a great event in the history of humanity. And so in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, maybe I'll preach through Romans. Maybe, maybe, I mean, that's such a great book, and that would be an amazing way to take a whole year to commemorate the Reformation. Now, when it comes to the Reformation, the traditional account says on October 31st, 1517, the Catholic monk Martin Luther walked to the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed his 95 theses to the church door publicly lodging his complaint to the archbishop about many problems in the church, including the sales of indulgences. And this act was one of the greatest moments in history. Now, when it comes to the Reformation, uh, that is spectacular enough. So the theme of our study in the book of Romans is going to be nail it down. Just as Martin Luther according to the traditional account, nailed down the convictions that had eluded him as a monk for so long. So the Bible in the book of Romans challenges you to nail down your convictions. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about yourself? What do you believe about sin? It's a great book that challenges you comprehensively to nail it all down. But it's not just about the Reformation because that happened long after Christ, long after the book was written. We're going to see what the book of Romans contributed to the early church. When it was first uh, released, what, what, what does it do to increase our understanding of God and salvation and sin? We have a few pictures here. Um, when we see Martin Luther, here's kind of the you know, historical glorified account of a man taking a stand uh, in the medieval days and posting his theses. Here's another picture of what the theses would have looked like written in Latin. Uh, anybody read Latin? Want to stand up and no? Okay. <laughs> Here's another picture of the city where it all happened, and that right there is the church where he took this this great stand. So that's the theme, the Book of Romans. Nail it down, and we are commemorating the Reformation throughout this series. We will take time and learn about the history of the church. One of the weaknesses of being in a non-denominational church is we don't have roots. And often we suffer because of that. I know the complaints about being in a denomination, right? Uh, There's a long list of grievances because of all the history, but that's a weakness for us. We don't have roots. And so 
looking back at what God has done in the church throughout history is going to strengthen us. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is the book of Romans is a letter that outlines the plan of salvation. It, it outlines the plan of salvation and invites everyone to embrace God's plan of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Job asked the question long, long ago in his book, nine, chapter 9, verse 2. He said, truly I know what it is, that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? And that question lingered in how can we be right before God? And the book of Romans is one big answer to that question. How can you know that you are right with God? And I don't just mean guess. I mean know that you are right with God. That's what the whole year is going to be about. Let's pray, and then we'll begin our journey into the book of Romans. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this book. Thank you that you gave us such an encyclopedia of understanding um, Lord, we learn so much from the other books in the New Testament, but this truly is the comprehensive understanding of salvation, the history of salvation, your interactions with man, our dealings with you. So Lord, I pray that this book would be a tremendous blessing to everyone in the room, and I pray that you would both teach us new and great things about you and, uh, Lord, how you have loved us, and, and also teach us things about ourselves that we might be maybe haven't seen yet, and I pray that there would be lives transformed as your word is preached. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. All right, the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of His name, among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to ask several questions today to get our bearings and to figure out what this book is all about. But the first question, you can jot this down. What is the message? What, what is the message of the book of Romans? Paul begins by saying uh, that he is a servant of Christ, set apart as, a, as an apostle for the gospel of God. The gospel of God. So the message is the gospel of God. That means that it's from God. It's it's not invented by man, and it's handed down from heaven. So whenever you get a message, you have to ask, where did you get that from, and what's the authority of the person who gave it to you? This is the gospel of God handed to us by an apostle authorized to speak on God's behalf. Now, you may not believe this even if I tell you it, but I got a message from President Trump this week on my phone. <laughs> there I was, sitting at Portillo's eating lunch, and suddenly my phone went off, and I looked, and it said, presidential alert. The president texted me, and so I, huh, I took notice, and then everyone else's phone in the whole restaurant went off too. <laughs> the whole restaurant was like, what is going on? And people are eating, looking at their phones, and they were all like, oh, the president texted me. Did he text you? He texted me. And then I'm like, whose idea was this? to give the president the ability to text everyone in the whole country at once. I mean, don't we know of his social media ills? He really struggles, and now he can text all of us. I'm really nervous about that. 
But if it was just a text from like, I don't know, you know, Jimmy, a third grader, I'd be like, you know, but it was the president from the White House. Now, listen, when you get a message, you care who it's from. Email, who's it from? Phone, who's calling? The gospel is a message from God. The gospel is a message from God. Understand what Christians believe about the source of our truth. We think the gospel, the truth of Jesus, comes from heaven. We don't think man made it up. There's not, there was not a church council that got together and said, well, what is our faith? They were told by messengers from heaven. Now, it says here, set apart for the gospel of God, <clears throat> which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So now he's looking to the Old Testament. So this message is a gospel of God, and it's also attested by Old Testament Scriptures. Sometimes people get this wrong, and they think the Old Testament is when God was mad, and he hurt a lot of people, but then he got nice in the New Testament. No, that's wrong. The Old Testament basically got the world ready for Jesus to come. Okay, that's the summary of the whole book. Every verse in the Old Testament was getting the world ready for Jesus to come somehow. And actually, the whole New Testament is getting the world ready for Jesus to come again. It's the basic message of the whole Bible. And in the Old Testament, there were prophets who looked ahead to the glorious coming of Jesus. For example, check out Isaiah 53, 5-6. We'll put it up on the screen. It says, now this was, of course, written hundreds of years before Christ. But listen, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wow, who is this one who would be wounded for us, crushed for us? Who, who can bring peace through his broken body? And, and the prophet was looking ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you read the prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, you find it talks about the location of his birth. You find it talks about some of the specifics of his ministry, but most importantly about the divine nature of the person himself. He's a glorious king from heaven. So this message is the gospel of God. It's attested to by Old Testament scriptures. And then it goes on to say, uh, servant of Christ Jesus, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. There's a lot in here, but jot this down. The gospel means great news. Great news. Believe God's son died to save you. This is the message. Great news. Believe God's son died to save you. The word evangelism comes from the Greek word that means good news. And so, so, so the gospel is the great news that God's Son came to die to save you. We learn a lot about the person of Jesus here. It said that he was God's Son, the Son of God. Now you might be like, well, yeah, we're all God's children, right? Wrong. The Bible teaches clearly that anybody who becomes a child of God has to be adopted into his family by faith. You received the adoption as sons, which means you were not born a child of God. You are not naturally of the same lineage and nature of God, but Jesus was. Jesus has never not been related to the Father. That makes him one of a kind. He is the only Son of God 
who bears the divine nature without needing to be brought in by faith. That makes Jesus God the Son. Jesus was 100% God, which is why he, he's called Lord. Lord is the title of God. It means he bears all the authority over all the universe. Jesus is Lord. He's also the Christ, which means he's the promised Savior from the Old Testament. And this was all authenticated by the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of holiness here. Check out Romans 8.11, but here's what that says. Romans 8.11, we'll put it up on the screen. It says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The point is, it was the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead to authenticate that, that he was of God. Man condemned him, God vindicated him, and therefore he is, uh, he is the way and the truth and the life. But he was also 100% man. It says here, according to the flesh, he was the son of David. So he was 100% man. Because of his royal lineage, he had a right to the throne of Israel. But when this ruler was spoken of in the Old Testament, he would be no ordinary king. His throne would last forever. Forever he would rule. So great news. Believe God's son died to save you. And understand that this is a universal message. It says, this is for the sake of his name, verse 5, among the nations. Among the nations. This gospel message is a message not just for Jews, but for the world. Here's a picture of earth. That's where I live on earth. It's my home planet. There's a lot of people living on that planet. And just for a moment, look at all those twinkling lights. Each of them represents a great city, sometimes a metropolis, sometimes millions of people. And this old message of a carpenter who died on a cross and rose again is the hope of the world. For every person represented by every dot and pixel of that planet, there is hope. And the hope is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's message for the world. What is the message? Great news. Believe God's Son died to save you. It says in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. The news of the faith in Jesus Christ was spreading all over. So let's be clear. What is the message? The message of the book of Romans, the message of the whole Bible is you need to be saved. And let me ask you this question. Have you received the message? Have, have you received the message God has been trying to tell you your whole life? God has been trying to get a message to you your entire life. Maybe your life has been hard and you wonder why it's been so hard. Why has God allowed so much pain into your life? And I've got an answer for that. All the pain in your life is God's way of saying one thing to you. You need my son. That's why it happened. That's why it happened. To show you your need. You need my son. Well, God and I have always been good. I've always known God. No, that's not true. Maybe you've known people who have always known God. But there has to come a point in your life where you learn who God is and you, you reach out and you receive the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Are you a saved person? Have you received the message by faith that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners? If you think you're a pretty good person, that means you haven't received the news from heaven that you need a Savior. See, because religious people don't go to heaven, okay? Saved people go to heaven. 
So are you a saved person? Great news. Believe God's Son died to save you. And why would you put that off another day? Receive Jesus as Lord and Savior today, and your life will be transformed. Now that's number one. What is the message? Number two, you can jot this down. Who is the author? You want to know who's speaking to you, right? Who is the author? Well, it says in the first word, Paul. There's no mystery here, right? Paul. Who is the author? Paul is the author, and we know that he wrote the book of Romans in A.D. 57. And so this was maybe 25 years, 25 plus or minus years after Christ died. And the Apostle Paul wrote from Corinth, the city of Corinth, on his third missionary journey. Here's a map that shows the Apostle Paul's third missionary journey. He went out one time, he went out twice. Do we have that map with the missionary journey? You might be missing that one. Well, the Apostle Paul went out to visit all of these cities on his missionary journey to show the gospel to the world. And while he was in Corinth, he sat down and he wrote this letter to the church in Rome. He hadn't been there yet. He was planning to take a benevolence offering to Jerusalem for the Gentile church, from the Gentile churches. Then he hoped to visit Rome and continue on to the western border of the empire, which would be Spain. That was his plan. He didn't know at this point, but when he got to Jerusalem, he'd be arrested. He would eventually end up in Rome, but as a prisoner. But this is what he's telling them. Now, he wrote this book in Corinth, and then somebody brought it to Rome for him. So this letter made a 600-mile trip, right? They didn't have online, so somebody had to carry it, you know, to the city. So this book would originally make a 600-mile trip. And what do we know about this author, Paul? Well, he calls himself a servant. The word in the Greek is slave of Christ Jesus. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Now think of all the things he could have said about himself. He could have flashed his credentials and said, I'm a citizen of Rome. I grew up in Tarsus, which is one of the three most respected cities as being a center of learning. He could have said, I was trained in Jewish Bible college under the most renowned teacher of the day. But he didn't. He said, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. When you think of the word slave, you do not get good images in your mind. Here's a picture of an image that comes along with slave, like the old ball and chain, right? There's just, there's just this like bondage, right? This, who would want to identify as that? And of all the ways you can describe your relationship with Jesus, I'm his slave. Just try that evangelism strategy. Go to someone in your life who doesn't know Jesus and be like, he's my slave master. And it was true. Paul understood that coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ meant losing his life. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Meaning, to come under the lordship of Jesus, Jesus doesn't just become like one patch you sew on your sash. He becomes your lord. And what a graphic way for the apostle Paul to describe this. I am under his authority. This is really shocking for a few reasons. First of all, he hated Christians so much. He went house to house to house, persecuting them early in his life. Paul had power. He had political sway. He knew people in high places, and he was raised wealthy. 
and he was advancing. And then, and then he saw a light on the road to Damascus, and Jesus spoke to him and said, Why do you persecute me? And he fell face down, and then he realized it was true. Jesus is Lord. He got baptized, and he immediately started proclaiming that Jesus is the Lord. Like that, flip around. So nobody believed that this man, who was against the faith, actually changed and became for it. It was shocking. I tried to think of what that would be like today. Imagine President Trump tomorrow coming on TV and announcing that he really believes with all of his heart that Hillary deserves to be president. In fact, he is laying down his office and devoting his life to becoming her campaign manager. Uh, say that's not going to happen. <laughs> Imagine Michael Jordan announcing that he has finally concluded, based on the film, that LeBron James is the best who's ever played the game. Therefore, he is going to be removing all of his statues, and he is going to begin uh, becoming LeBron James's uh, promotional director. Uh, and and he, his public relations manager, and he's going to go around erecting monuments to LeBron James for the rest of his life. Say, that's not going to happen. That, that's not going to happen. Imagine Bill Gates announcing that he's finally willing to concede that the Mac is better than the PC. And he's shutting down Microsoft, and he's going to work for Apple. Am I right? These things never happen. The Apostle Paul, who is going door to door hauling Christians off to jail, is now the one writing most of the New Testament. It boggles the mind. It's shocking. Paul, admitting that this carpenter was the Messiah, was unbelievable. Jot this down. Who's the author? An enemy of the gospel now invites us to embrace Christ. An enemy of the gospel now invites us to embrace Christ. Oh, if you met the Apostle Paul, if you're not a Christian, and you launched with all of your objections, I'll tell you why I'm not a Christian, because of this, and because of this, and because of this. He'd just smile. He'd just smile. Say, yep, that was me. That was me. I threw a bunch of them in prison in my rage. But then I saw the light. An enemy of the gospel now invites us to embrace Christ. Now, he calls himself an apostle. An apostle, the, the word means sent, the sent one. It's listed as a spiritual gift, so a few things to be said about that. There are lowercase a apostles that were just sent out. Today, a missionary, a church planner would be an apostle, one who is sent out with the gospel. But then some spiritual gifts had an office attached to them. The apostle, there were some capital A apostles who had the office. The same is true with deacons. There are a lot of deacons. The word just means servant. But some have the office, like capital D, have the office of deacon in the church. And there's a difference. Um, some pastors and elders in the church have the title, right? So like all of our pastors are elder qualified, but they don't have the office in the church of serving on the elder board. Um, so Paul was a capital A apostle. He was commissioned by Christ himself he was an, these are the requirements. He was an eyewitness of the resurrection, commissioned by Jesus himself. Therefore, he had the authority to speak for God in a special way and to write down books of the Bible. It's important to ask where you get your truth from, where you get your truth. For most people in the world today, they get their truth right here. They won't say it, but if you trace down what they believe, 
this is where it's coming from, okay? And we don't think that's acceptable. We think truth has to come from above. And the Apostle Paul got it straight from Christ. Where did the Bible come from? This is so exciting to figure out, but the Bible in this, when the book of Romans was being written, the Bible was still in, in progress. So when the church in Rome got the book of Romans, all they had by that time in AD 57 was the book of James, the book of Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and maybe Mark. Maybe. Seven down, right? 20 to go. Reading through the Bible in a year was a breeze back then. <laughs> I just got done reading through the Bible. Really? It's February. Yeah, I'm going to do it again. <laughs> We don't even know how many books got to the different cities, but they were supposed to be circulated. But wow, how exciting that the Bible was actually being written down. And you have to ask yourself, how can we trust the credibility of the Bible? Well, one of the reasons we can trust the credibility of the Bible is because of the authors. And the Apostle Paul was the least likely candidate to become the chief protagonist for Jesus. His transformation cannot be explained except for the Lord Jesus Christ. It, can't, it makes no sense. There is no reason why he would flip around and risk his life for somebody if he thought that somebody was a crucified criminal. He would not do it. It is unbelievable and unexplainable that he did what he did. The only reasonable explanation is Jesus was really risen. So you can trust the credibility as an author. We also know his credentials. He knew his Bible. He had connections. He knew the political world. He was a Roman citizen, so he knew the culture. He knew the government. And this, this means it wasn't just some guy who's like, I want to write a book. And his friends were like, yeah, I'll read it. I mean, this was a trustworthy source. All right, so number one, what is the message? Great news. Believe God's son died to save you. Number two, who's the author? An enemy of the gospel now invites us to embrace Christ. Number three, who is the audience? Write that down. Who is the audience? It says in verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say this, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to Greeks, to barbarians, both to the wise, to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The audience is Roman Christians. We're pausing there because verse 16 and 17 are actually the theme verses of the whole book, and those are the verses Martin Luther was meditating on when his heart got changed and transformed, and that sparked the fire of the Reformation. So we're going to spend an entire week on 16, or, on 16 and 17 um, next week. But the point is the audience is... Jewish Christians. They were made up of Romans, Greeks, and Jews who now belonged to Christ. And they met together in house churches around the greatest city of the day. They're called to be saints through faith. We know there were believers in Rome from early on because visitors from Rome were present at Pentecost in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit 
fell in power. So they were saved. They went back and started telling people 25 years ago about Jesus. And then the church began to be built up and expanded. And so now there was this whole network of believers uh, in the capital of a glorious empire. Jot this down. They lived in Rome, and Rome was the capital of the greatest empire in history. Capital of the greatest empire in history. I read a little passage describing the greatness of Rome here, but <clears throat> the history of Rome is the city of Rome was founded upon seven hills on the eastern shore of the Tiber River. Rome grew from a small city to an empire through its conquests of Italy, Carthage, in North Africa, Greece, Macedonia, Western and Northern Europe, and Egypt, and much of the Near East by Paul's day. Rome contained great stadiums like the Circus Maximus, which could hold 150,000 spectators. It was used for chariot races, animal hunts, religious and political events, and concerts. This was the center of a vast empire filled with pagan gods, cult temples, forums, arches, statues, palaces, temples to Mars, Venus, Apollo, Jupiter, Saturn, famous aqueducts, which fed bathhouses and fountains. Historians guess there were one to two million people living in Rome at the time. Here is a map of the Roman Empire, and they took over so much. Uh, it, was, it was huge. I mean, look at all that, that Rome was managing after the birth of Christ. And here, right in the center, the city of Rome, all the power, all the money, all the fortune, all the culture, all the influence, and this is where this letter arrived. Do we have one more picture of the city of Rome? I'm not sure if that one got through there. There it is. This is an artist's rendering a little later, a little later, uh, because the Colosseum wasn't built yet, but uh, this, this just gives you an idea of the, the beauty and the glory and the majesty of the city of Rome. And here's where this letter showed up, the very heart of a glorious empire. This is the audience. The audience was people living in this great city. <clears throat> Jot this down. They were an uncommon community centered on Christ. This is what the church was like. They were an uncommon community centered in Christ. This small group of believers meeting in homes around the city received a letter that would be cherished in the church for 2,000 years. Listen, Rome was filled with pomp and power and lust and luxury, but nothing in Rome was as glorious as the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ brought more power and prestige to Rome through these little band of outcast Christians than any emperor ever could. But this glory was hidden in jars of clay. Ordinary people going about their day as carpenters, fishermen, servants, messengers, silversmiths, goldsmiths, merchants, tanners, doctors, innkeepers, weavers, Soldiers, jailers, tent makers. Jesus hid his eternal glory in the hearts of ordinary people. And the kingdom of Rome would fall and the kingdom of Christ still stands. There's nothing in Rome like the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they missed it. This group of Christians models for us how a church can build loving community. They had huge racial and cultural and language barriers, big economic barriers as they met. So how can our church confront the barriers that divide people today? How can our church overcome the obstacles that exist between people from different classes, different races, different backgrounds? In addition, this church faced persecution. Roman officials saw Christians as disturbers of the peace. And there were a few times in, in Paul's day when Jews were expelled from Rome altogether. All of you out. 
So there was great persecution. And this church is going to model for us how we can endure persecution together. They were eventually allowed back in. So now we know the message, now we know the author, now we know the audience. Number four, what are the main themes? I mean, what are we going to cover in this book? Uh, And here they are. When it comes to the main themes, the first one is sin. Sin. What is right and what is wrong? When I had a class in college called, forget what it was called, but it was a social sciences class and I was not looking forward to it. I went to the bookstore and the teacher made us buy seven books for this class. And I was walking out of the bookstore, you know, like mumbling under my breath at this teacher. His wife taught at the same school, and she said, don't take his class, he's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, she said that, but I took it. We were reading amazing stories that show different views of civilization in the 20th century, 19th century. And he helped us to piece it all together, you know, what, what was life like? in the Nazi regime? What was life like under communist rule? What was life like in the excess of the West? And, and we read all these books, and then, and then on the final test, the final test was an essay test. Question number one, he said, what is good? Question number two, what is evil? Essay. Essay. I got an A. He never gives A's. I was so proud of myself because this class I didn't even want to take formed my heart and my mind, and showed me the development of the world, and I had an understanding of what good and what evil was, which I don't feel like I had at the beginning of that class. I was a new Christian. God was forming my heart through this class. I love the book of Romans because it's going to do essentially what that stack of books did for me. What is right and what is wrong? Our world can't define these things. You know that, right? They won't give you a clear answer on what is right and what is wrong. They can't. Paul basically begins Romans by talking about sin for the first several chapters. He surveys the damage sin has done. Like a homeowner walking into a house after vacation, finding their home ransacked by thieves, so Paul moves from room to room, nation to nation, heart to heart, showing what sin has ruined, showing what sin has stolen. And then he starts talking about Salvation. That's next. Salvation. How can my sin problem be solved? How's God going to fix this? How's he going to restore what sin has taken? How's he going to repair what sin has broken? Salvation. How can my sin problem be solved? There's disagreement over what the solution is. Some say be religious. Others say be neighborly or get educated or be skeptical and don't believe what you hear or be charitable and nice and kind. Those are good things. They don't answer the question, how can I be saved? How can I know that I'm right with God? Romans answers that question. So he talks about sin, then he talks about salvation, then he talks about sanctification. How can my behavior change? How can I change? I read a quote by an American playwright, uh, and he, he was uh, an old American playwright. And on his 75th birthday, 75th birthday, He gave a little speech, and he said this, I have had just about all I can take of myself. I have had just about all I can take of myself. 75. I mean, do you feel that at times? Do you feel like, I'm my problem. (laughs) I can't get me under control, right? 
Like, other people frustrate you, but if you're honest, you frustrate you the most. Am I right? Why did I do that again? Why did I say that? I said I was going to change this area, and now I'm right back where I started. I, am I ever going to change? Don't you wonder that? Sanctification is how can my behavior change. So this is not just a book about what we believe. This is a book about how God can transform how we behave. That's good news. I need that. Next, sovereignty. After sanctification, he goes on to the category of sovereignty and spends several chapters talking about how God's plan unfolded. He talks about God's sovereign hand in the rise and fall of nations like Egypt and, Jerusalem, uh, and Israel, God's involvement in every human heart to work faith and unbelief out for his purposes, and of course, the famous discussion about free will uh, versus predestination, which I promise you I will clear that all up for you. I know it's been a long time, you have a lot of questions, but by the time I'm done preaching on it, you'll have no more questions. And then after sovereignty, he closes out with a very practical few chapters on service. How can I serve a holy God? This includes how you can know your spiritual gifts. This includes finding out where God wants you to serve. And this includes the nature of what it means to be a person who cares about other people and actually helps them to grow in their life and their walk with the Lord Jesus. So you can see start to finish talking about doctrines of sin and salvation and sanctification and sovereignty and service. Man, this is like an encyclopedia of what we believe and how we behave in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is so much here that it's going to take a whole year for us to unpack it. And we could, frankly, take 10 years in this book, but we can't. But in a whole year, we are going to dig down on these awesome truths and invite God to truly transform our hearts and our lives. As we close out now, I just want to Give us all a chance to pray. And I hope this isn't just you watching me pray or listening to me pray. I hope you will open the doors of your heart and invite the Lord Jesus to come in. What did the, what did the Lord say? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right? I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens up, my Father and I will come in. Remember, that was originally an invitation to Christians. Right? To churches. Open up your heart. Because I feel like I'm outside. But it's also an invitation to unbelievers. If you have kept God outside of your life for too long, this is your chance at the beginning of this book to believe in the gospel that the enemy of Christ, Paul, now embraces. The gospel of Christ, that he died, he rose again, and he alone can be Lord of your life who saves you forever and forgives your sins. Let's all just bow our hearts, bow our heads, close our eyes, and, um, and let's ask God to go to work over the next year in our hearts through his word. Let's pray. Father, we just begin a new series here, humbling ourselves before you. Uh, Lord, these are truths that have come down from heaven. They have been handed to us by a man who was your opponent, a man who did shameful things and who uh, cursed the name of Christ, broke the church to pieces, who was on a rampage going from city to city, and then you changed his life forever. Fill us with that same hope that you can save our loved ones. And as we invite them to come to church to hear about the gospel, use Romans, Lord, to to save even the vilest offender. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we open our hearts to you, and may you show us what the faith is and help us to embrace it. Lord, those who are newer in the faith, may they just get an understanding of what it is that we truly believe. And those who have perhaps walked with Christ for 50 years, I pray that they would strengthen their grip on the truths that they have loved forever. May they grow stronger in faith, not weaker, more mature in faith, 
not more childish. We pray that you would accomplish all of this through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name.